0: Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt and you're listening to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's the show where I try and cover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for listening to this episode, hope you enjoy it. I'm recording this intro on the hottest day of the year or possibly in history, given the way everybody in dear old Blighty is reacting to it. To talk plainly, it's really hot. And when this weather finally breaks, that Shawshank Redemption meme is going to do some serious business. Certainly not the weather for sitting on Zoom and recording an interview in a boiling hot shed, which is what I did today. But then when you hear the conversation I had with Tim Baker, my guest on today's show, you're going to understand why I was so keen to dodge the beach and do this instead. Now, Tim is a writer, surfer and journalist. He's edited tracks and ASL, which in itself is quite a quite a double whammy. He's written some much-loved books about Rabbit, Oki and Fanning among amongst others. But 5 years ago he was diagnosed with cancer and he spent the intervening years finding a way of dealing with his condition both physically and mentally and exploring it through various writing. Now I know who Tim is. His reputation as one of the great surf writing stylists is rightly legendary, but I was unaware of this latest chapter until listener Jamie Curry tipped me off. Pointing me in the direction of Tim's essay in the latest issue of the Surface Journal with the words along the lines of this is as good a piece on mortality as you're ever going to find. And he was right. I then read more of Tim's work on the topic and decided to um, act upon Jamie's suggestion that he might be a brilliant guest for the show. Because as will become clear from our conversation, Tim has been dealing with the biggest theme of all, which is our own impending mortality, the great hidden experience of all our lives. Because it's the thing we've all got in common and the thing we all ignore. It's the thing that Clint was getting at in that famous line in Unforgiven. We've all got it coming, kid. Usually we put off the inevitable reckoning until we're forced to face it under the worst possible circumstances, loss, grief or sickness, which is the experience Tim has been living through. And yet, as I discovered, Tim's dealt with this, his own particular experience on this score with clarity, compassion and a completely Admirable generosity of spirit that shines through in his writing and during our conversation. I found our conversation to be a very profound and moving one, which I enjoyed very much, and I hope you can take something similar from it. I'll be back at the end with more of the usual, but in the meantime, here's me and Tim Baker, the middle way. Enjoy. Well, one of the things I've really found so interesting about your writing about it is that paradox of, you know, this thing that we all know is coming, but everybody mm. ignores. And, yeah. and you know, that, that, that being such a feature of the Western approach to mortality. And mm-hmm. and obviously that's, you know, it seems to me that's what you're writing on. This is really exploring and your approach to this is exploring. So that and that's why I thought, well, that could be quite interesting, you know, like if we if we could have the have the conversation in those sort of terms which you because obviously yeah. I think there's because you know that's that seems to be the exploration that you've been having with this whole thing really um yeah definitely but, yeah, but before we go there how you doing
1: yeah no really good had a little surf out Corumban Alley this afternoon beautiful winter's day here um nice it, yeah we don't have much in the way of um, restrictions here in Queensland, we don't, we haven't had any community transmission for I think seventy days. So, um, oh, yeah, oh, we're wow. are pretty pretty fortunate. Yeah.
0: And it is is it seems to be quite. I'm not too familiar with, you know, the sort of state and federal setup over there, but it does seem to be that certain states have handled it much more effectively than others. Is that the case?
1: Yeah, and there does seem to be a bit of an ideological divide, I think, between the kind of right and left wing state governments. We've got a conservative or right wing federal government. And I think sort of fairly predictably the the left wing state governments are much keener on sort of hard lockdown, going for eradication and the and the more conservative right wing State governments and the federal government have been much more about the economy and opening things up and learning to live with the virus and and that kind of thing. So there's been a bit of tension between those two positions, but certainly um, most states other than Victoria and New South Wales, which are our most populous states, um, most of the other states are more or less virus free. Um, and there's still a, a strong argument from some who are expert in the field that we should have from the beginning and still could go for eradication as New Zealand has done. But um, I don't think that's going to happen, really. Um, right. But, yeah, strange times, like, everywhere, you know.
0: Yeah, so I saw so a brilliant thing online, which was, like, one axis was, like, how much of a twat the leader is and the other axis was number of deaths. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. tr- Trump... <laughs> Bolsonaro and and so mm. on, you know, with our, you know, G- Jacinda Arden at the bottom, effectively. Um, yeah, 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 I mean, it's like you say, it's an ideological battleground. There's actually a really fascinating article, I don't know if you've read it, on Rolling Stone at the minute, mm. which is called The Unraveling of America. Have you read that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's what pretty, you, uh, makes pretty chilling reading.
0: What, what did you think of that?
1: Oh look, I think I think without having spent a lot of t- time in America, well, in my life and in recent times in particular, um, it does it does seem to ring true just from what I've read, kind of online and you know the people I follow on Twitter in America, the journalists and writers who I follow, and um, yeah, just it just sounds like a disaster, and you know for the first time in our lifetimes. I, I can imagine civil war in that country. It's, you know, things that were once unthinkable now seem thinkable.
0: Yeah, you know, it really reminds me of the end of the Soviet Union, you know, mm. like uh, in that sort of failed state territory that that happened very rapidly, didn't it? Well, obviously not there, you know, mm. in, that, in in that country, state, it was obviously been going on for mm. years, but, you know, from the outside, it appeared to just happen r- very, very rapidly, didn't it? And it does feel reminiscent to that with the amount of hubris that's on show and, you know, the amount of, and that, you know, I think that article is obviously like a left-wing hypothesis, isn't it? That that certainly from yeah. what I saw on t- Twitter, there's a lot of people that are going to strongly disagree with that, but equally mm. just couched in those terms of like a failed state, fading empire it's pretty fascinating and you know just to bring it back to the mm. inevitable podcast covid situation it um it, it is just an an interesting ideological lens isn't it that, that we've got right now really yeah as you as you oh, said with yeah. the kind of the approach
1: and it just magnifies the sort of the cracks and fault lines in our societies you know and um everything from you know healthcare to aged care to welfare and you know we have a very conservative government who you know have had to embrace you know very left-wing policies around welfare like a lot of governments you know which i'm sure they,
0: they
1: they find deeply uncomfortable but um yeah you know it's it's you know, I've read a lot of stuff around, um, you know, if capitalism so great, how come it needs to be kind of propped up by socialism every kind of few years? And I don't know. I'm yeah. a bit of a lefty. So as you might have gathered. Um,
0: oh, me too. But, as, as anyone that mm, listens to this will know. So I just, I just yeah. do find it. A, yeah. I mean, you know, we had an election in uh, when, when, what, December last year over here in the UK and the poli- you know, Jeremy Corbyn, who's leader of the opposition, like the policies that saw him pilloried as basically a communist were nowhere near mm. as left-wing as of what the government ended up doing like three months later. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, as as mm. as you say, interesting times. But it sounds like yeah. where you are, things have been... Have you managed to live life? Has it, has it changed too much or have you been able to kind of crack well, on?
1: No, I mean, I kind of joke that I've been in training for this for years, you know, like um, as a freelance writer working from home and as someone who's been living with a cancer diagnosis for the past five years, um, I'm uh, I'm comfortable with financial insecurity. Um, I'm I'm comfortable with staying home and um, I, I... confront my mortality on a daily basis so you know i feel like i'm kind of built yeah. for these times in a in a strange kind of way
0: right and has it affected your ability to follow the path of of treatment i'm using the inverted commas because yeah you know, from 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 the yeah. writing that you've done obviously that's that that's a broad array of um, mm. things you've been doing to so is have yeah. you been able to kind of continue that or is has it affected that yeah
1: no, we're, I mean, we're really fortunate here. We've had very, very low cases in Queensland, where I am, and the local hospital where I go to for treatment. Um, from the outset of the whole COVID thing, they it, they decided to keep that hospital kind of COVID-free. And so the cases were going to other hospitals in the area. And as it was, the, the health system never even got close to being swamped. You know, we've had such low numbers um, so yeah, nothing. Nothing's really changed in that regard. I, I I speak to my oncologist on the phone rather than going into his his office. That's about all that's changed. And um, right, yeah, we, without sort of wanting to, um, sort of, what's the word? Kind of um, gives the game away too early. I've had really great news. Um, Last week, my last consultation with my oncologist, he told me he thought I was in remission. So that's pretty exciting. Oh, wow.
0: Wow, that is exciting yeah. because my understanding yeah. is it was a, a terminal diagnosis.
1: Yeah, well, that, that was a that's a word I wouldn't have used that the, the, the Surface Journal editors did. And, and, and understandably, because um, I guess there's nuances around some of those terms that unless you have lived with the diagnosis, you might not be sort of particularly familiar with. Um, I've got stage four I'm gonna, advanced
0: I'm gonna hold my hands up and say I totally lifted that from the surface journal story <laughs> yeah,
1: so. yeah 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 so I have stage four metastatic um, prostate cancer and it's considered incurable and 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 ultimately fatal but um there have been great advances in the treatment even in the five years I've been living with a diagnosis and I also work pretty hard at it you know, I've tried to pick a middle line through conventional and sort of complementary therapies and um, I think um, it's so far so good. You know, I, I had one kind of t- big tumour in my right femur which completely went away uh, sort of about two years after diagnosis and hasn't come back and I've only ever had a couple of other smaller ones which um, based on my, my latest blood test and and the sort of, plummeting biomarkers my oncologist at our last appointment said um gave me the happy news that he thought i was in remission so um yeah something to celebrate
0: wow that's that's amazing so i mean i'm gonna ask a very glib i'm gonna ask a very glib question then um how does that Mm. feel
1: well it's pretty weird actually i mean i could tell you a story if um you know you don't mind uh, sort of drug references and sort of illegal activities all being on,
0: referenced. It's all it's all on the table. It's all on the table <laughs> in this thing.
1: So well, it was pretty funny because um, you know that's been my goal for five years. You know, I I, I meditate daily. I do an annual ten-day Vipassana meditation retreat. I've I've juiced a truckload of carrots over the past five years <laughs> and followed a pretty. Uh, with varying degrees of diligence, a sort of broadly plant-based diet and take a variety of herbs and supplements as well as my conventional therapies that my oncologist recommends. I just kind of do it all really, including yeah. my, my own homemade cannabis oil. So I was, I was going out to visit a friend of mine in this sort of lush inland rainforest area of northern New South Wales to um, to get some herb to make my cannabis oil. And um, I'll try and cut the fairly long story short. She came to the door in no, fuck, some there's agitation. No, there's,
0: no, there's no time limit. <laughs>
1: yeah, goes, goes she to came to the door. She came to the door in a, a state of quite high agitation and said, "Look, you're just going to have to grab it and go." And, and I said, "Why?" And she said, um, "The police are raiding my neighbour. I think he's got a meth lab there down there." <laughs> and um, and she she'd she'd woken up that morning to half a dozen police. At her door, um, thinking she was the property that they needed to raid, and that they discover this very sort of demure, sort of hippie flower child woman, and, wow. and they say, "You know, have you got any drug? Got any drugs on the premises?" And she's like, "Oh, I've got a couple of plants on the balcony." <laughs> and they're like, uh, "You're not the person we're after." And they they charged on down the hill to to find the the guy they were looking for. And wow. so I kind of left left with my, um, my little bag of um, bush buds and drove down the hill um, hoping to get home in time for my oncologist's telehealth call. Um, and I was in the, if anyone's familiar with the northern New South Wales, lots of sugarcane fields, you know, by a meandering river and I'm doing this lovely country drive and he called. So I pulled over to the side of the road and had this oncologist's um, call on the side of the road in the midst of these cane fields. And and um, my PSA, if anyone's familiar with PSA, which is the main biomarker for prostate cancer, a healthy PSA is below three. Um, mine when I was diagnosed was 120, which is very, obviously very high. Um, in... Recently, I'd, I'd sort of tried to go off this medication that I really hated and was sort of trying to manage, manage things a bit more naturally. And after a few months, my PSA spiked and it was obvious I was going to have to go back on the, the medication. And um, in the space of three months, my PSA went from 50 to 14 to 0.34 to 015 which is a pretty wow. remarkable drop. And my oncologist is like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. If I didn't see this with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. It's a, this is a one in a million result. And and um, and I said to him, well, because I'd also been exploring some other treatment, a sort of targeted radiation treatment that an integrative doctor I, I sort of consult with had recommended. I said, would now be a good time to try this um, targeted radiation while well, we've got it on the back foot. And he said... Uh, well, I think if we scanned, we wouldn't find anything to radiate. And I was like, uh, what What does that mean? And he said, I think you're in remission. And <laughs> I'm sitting in my car on the side of the road in the middle of these cane fields with a, a sort of whole, what do they call them, whole sort of platoon of cyclists just kind of whizzing by, going, this, isn't, this is something I've been striving for for the past five years and it's not quite how I pictured this moment, you know. <laughs>
0: um Um,
1: but yeah very very good news but um in in a sense it's a it's a bit of a poison chalice because it's it's been achieved using a medication which i find pretty unpleasant with some pretty nasty side effects and so you know it's only sustainable as long as i'm prepared to endure that particular treatment and um so i'm busily researching other options and um there's the, there's the prospect of just using it intermittently, which is um, probably a, a not, not a bad um, sort of fallback position. But, yeah, I remain hopeful of being able to kind of keep it at bay through my own efforts, however sort of naively optimistic that may be. But um, for now, it's a win, and I'll just take it and celebrate it. And, you know, I've learned – I say I've, I kind of – I've learned not to get on the roller coaster, so – those results could change next month. You know, it could go back up, and or um, you know, I could find the med- medication so unpleasant that I have to seek other treatments, which you know may have other side effects. So you know, it's all very unpredictable. But um, yeah, for now we've had a had a little win. So uh, and and I feel great, and I'm surfing and fitting well. So
0: yeah, things are good. Nice that's that's really amazing so you mentioned you used a phrase earlier that i'd like to explore a little bit you said the middle ground and you know you mm. alluded to the fact that you've um your approach has been a combination of let's say conventional medicine you know i'm assuming like you mentioned radiation mm. like chemotherapy but then you've also mentioned diet meditation so i really like to get mm. into that but before i do um so this this treatment would you mind explaining a little bit about that you know you said this poison chalice Mm. like this this treatment that has had these incredible results but has obviously come Mm. with some kind of collateral damage let's say so um, is that something you could explain a little bit
1: yeah sure so the sort of frontline treatment for prostate cancer is is called hormone therapy um so prostate cancer feeds on testosterone so hormone therapy suppresses or blocks your natural testosterone with um yeah, some fairly unpleasant side effects. So it can affect um, muscle tone, bone density, um, moods, um, yeah, a whole range of things. So, you know, your testosterone obviously as men, you know, provides a bit of fire and spark to get stuff done and the absence of it can make you feel pretty lethargic and fatigued and, and this particular drug it affects different men differently, but it, it, it I do seem to have a pretty poor tolerance for it. And so that's why I've worked particularly hard to sort of have breaks from it. So over the five years, I've probably had um, two, two six-month breaks and one kind of 18-month break from it. And I've only just recently gone back on it. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's why I say, you know, it's a it's a win and a, and a cause for celebration, but it's been at the cost of. I, I describe it as like kind of going going back to an abusive relationship. <laughs> um, you know that you you discover you can't can't cope without your abuser, and you have to kind of return to them, which sounds pretty, you know, pretty dire and pretty dark. And it, and it isn't isn't kind of quite that bad. I'm sort of learning to manage it, and as I say, I'm, I remain. Um, hopeful and determined to use it intermittently and to continue to have breaks from it. But it's kind of like, it's kind of like playing chicken with your cancer. Like how, 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 how long do you let that PSA, that biomarker rise or um, before you sort of go back to it. Um, But now I've got, I think I've got a pretty good sense from, Sort of trial and error, what the sort of parameters are. And so, with the help of my oncologist, I think I can arrive at a regime that allows for sort of reasonable quality of life while, yeah, keeping the big C at bay.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seemed, I've, best friend of mine uh, suffered from cancer and I was around quite a lot when he was being treated. And um, yeah, it just seemed, mm. and you're, this is something that you really convey well in your writing about the experience the the sense of a trade-off essentially that that's required with with medicine to Mm. you you can well and it leads into the mortality the wider mortality question doesn't it you know like Mm. you can you can try and save your health but at what cost and yeah there's 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 a line in in your surface journal piece where you kind of say that seems to be the way with modern medicine you know like you can be treated for one thing, but then that might lead to another set of issues that then need treating. Yeah. And as somebody that's in the position you've been in, it's presumably, and this is the question, I guess, like it, it's about finding where that line is, like what you're prepared to trade off yeah. for that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a stunning business model, really, you know, they
0: kind of sell
1: you one treatment and then that leads to another and another and another, you know, the, like this hormone therapy at, one point a couple of years ago left me quite depressed and my oncologist was re- recommending antidepressants. And I'm like, well, you're giving me one <laughs> drug to make me depressed and you want to give me another drug to make me not depressed. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that really makes sense to me. I think I might have said in that article, you know, it's kind of like the old lady who swallowed the fly, you know, if you're familiar yeah. with that old children's yeah. nursery rhyme. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd probably be more... Are inclined towards microdosing psilocybin or LSD or something <laughs> than conventional antidepressants, you know. Yeah, um, and sure. and I do find I do find the home homemade cannabis oil fairly handy in that regard as well as a sort of mood enhancer.
0: Right, and yeah. and it brings me back to the middle ground analogy. Really, um, mm. was that because it's five years? I think you said right. Yes, Yeah. Uh, yeah so that is that, is that um, i hate to use the word journey because it's such a cliche it it kind of fits in this context yeah like, it does yeah um is that is that been what you've been discovering you know like with this comp you know this suite of approaches mm. that's that's been effective for you mentally and physically is that is that what this has been about uh medically like that you know discovering what that balance and combination is going to be for you
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think, um, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of things that have helped me along the way. Um, I mean, my wife's an acupuncturist, so she's pretty tuned into that world of complementary medicine. And right from the start, we kind of assembled a team. So I saw a nutritionist and an exercise physiologist and a, I see a psychologist and a naturopath and as well as my oncologist, you know um and it can all get a bit overwhelming and you can really disappear down some you know rabbit holes trying to research alternative therapies and at some point I realized I had to try and really kind of simplify things and so um I came up with this little mantra which was um I just I just have to take my meds m-e-d-s which stands for meditation exercise diet and sleep so you know, I take the meds that my oncologist prescribes me, but I also have my self-prescribed meds, which I feel like if I'm doing those things every day, that it's kind of keeping keep me on the right path. And, um, yeah, um, I think all those things should be part of just standard care, yet um, mainstream oncology still dismisses most of that stuff. Um they're coming around to exercise as medicine, you know, very slowly. Um, and even my oncologist concedes, you know, meditation is useful. But I was I was told right from the start from a couple of oncologists, and we sought out the preeminent authority on prostate cancer in the country, and were told multiple times that diet made no difference. That you could that I should eat whatever I like, and it would make no difference. And that just seemed madness to me, just like just on a kind of as a layperson's logical level, you know, like how could what you eat make no difference? And and it, it turns out there's tons of research to support a, a plant-based diet, and that you know the average medical degree I think contains you know one one lecture on nutrition, so you don't go to your oncologist for nutritional advice is the is the takeaway I think. You know, um,
0: I mean, i got a couple of questions on that. Did you, did you have that approach before your diagnosis? Uh, not especially, I mean,
1: I thought I was sort of moderately healthy. Um, and I think that can be a bit of the sort of a trap for the middle-aged surfer. You know, you can, I worked (laughs) really hard and, um, you know, I liked my coffee and I liked my beer and, um, you can go for a surf a couple of times a week and feel pretty, pretty decent, you know, um, there's, but
0: there's a lot I of people really... feeling quite a lot of people feeling quite seen. I think listen to this all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I was, I was probably 10 kilos overweight and, um, yeah, leading, uh, apart from surfing, leading a pretty sedentary lifestyle, spending a lot of time sat at a computer Stressing out about deadlines, which is a term I've really developed a distaste for, you know. Um, yeah, right. Um, and in in lots of ways, I mean, the diagnosis has completely redesigned my life, like nothing else could have, and um, a lot of it for the better, you know. Um, I'm not quite at the point where I'm ready to proclaim that it's been a blessing, you know. If I could wish, if I could wish it away, I would. Um, and, you know, even though I'm in remission, there's no guarantees that it won't return. And, and, and in fact that, you know, the oncologists would say they would expect it to return at some point, but, um, I don't, I don't feel bound by oncologists predictions. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure what I was trying to say, then. but yeah, I thought, I thought I was reasonably healthy, but in hindsight, yeah. I, I wasn't, I wasn't really. We-
0: you didn't have because you know the the things you've described are are something that that people use for mental health benefits as well like having that those rituals like those you know the way i think you said if you can do do those yeah i can certainly recognize that personally you know like having those things that you do to try and maintain physical and mental well-being essentially you know like Mm. eating healthily not drinking enough um doing a bit of yoga you know but obviously mm. that is like in day-to-day life it's just like a feast and famine scenario isn't it you might go through phases of that where you, you, you're on top of that and then you might drink too much beer and you know i think everyone can recognize that so i guess what i'm getting at is when when you uh, arrived at this approach for you after mm. the diagnosis was it because you know a huge part of this is obviously mentally coping and, mm. and like the physical thing is one thing but you know, the, the mental um, effects of that diagnosis and how it changes your life and how it changes you. I, I mean, I'm asking mm. the question, your perception of self must mm. be equally as difficult as, as the physical reality of it. So d- did that approach help with that side of it as well? Yeah, definitely. Balance that you needed?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I still struggle with it from time to time, but um, I'm a whole lot better off than I was. And, and meditation has really been the key to that. I'd been a, a sort of casual meditator in the past. You know, I'd, I'd done one 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat um, about, well, about 18, 19 years ago when my wife was pregnant with our first child as a sort of preparation for parenthood. Um, <laughs> and for anyone who's, who's not familiar with Vipassana, it's a pretty intense sort of 10-day silent meditation retreat sitting for... 10 hours a day and one of the first thoughts I had when I was diagnosed was, okay, I've got to get back into my meditation and um, and so I do, I've done three more for partner retreats since then and I sit for anywhere between an hour and two hours a day um, and, yeah, that's that's been such a blessing. I, I don't know how anyone copes with a diagnosis like this without some sort of practice like that because just being able to drop into a place of stillness and peace where you're just not doing head miles on oh god what's going to happen if and you know projecting into the future and you know having um you know regrets about the past I think if you didn't have that sort of sanctuary to drop into I'm not sure how you would cope really
0: so that's what that gave you that gave you an i I don't meditate so it's not something Mm. i particularly know a lot about i mean i've you know i've got Mm. friends that meditate that extol Mm. the the virtues and benefits as you've just done but it it sounded like it almost enabled you to separate yourself from the experience would that be a good good description
1: Um, yeah um and look, it's really it's a it, it's a very difficult thing to describe. It is just learning to still the mind, you know. So we all have, you know, what they say in in Buddhism is the kind of the monkey mind that you know jumps from one thing to another, and you know, typically we spend a lot of time, sort of, sort of mulling over the past and you know things we messed up and got wrong and projecting into the future and having, you know, worries and anxieties about the future and, and and kind of miss being in the present moment. And so meditation is just the practice of being really present in the now and sort of stilling the intellectual mind, that monkey mind that jumps from place to place. And with practice, um, I think it's, you know, you can, you can get good at doing it sitting on a cushion um, but the challenge is to being able to take it into your everyday life and that's something I still uh, kind of struggle with I, I can have my allocated meditation time and get to a very calm and peaceful place but um, out in the world it's a bit harder to practice sometimes sure um, but at yeah at its at its most profound you I think it's kind of dissolving the individual ego and so you no longer feel like, you know, your individual self with your own problems and pains that you've somehow been singled out for by a a cruel and uncaring universe and that you're just part of a greater whole and, you know, you're just a bunch of atoms vibrating harmoniously with the universe or something.
0: (laughs) yeah well you know it it brings me back to the the thing i mentioned just as we started recording you know like facing your own mortality i mean that's what this is about Mm. isn't it and and Mm. and and that you know you've used the buddhist concepts in your writing about this Mm. that essentially life is a preparation for death yeah And, and and as i as i mentioned at the beginning of our chat i think that's something everybody well in the west we don't face it you know it's the no. one thing we've all got in common and the one thing we never talk about and yeah. one of the lines that you used is a cancer diagnosis is a wake-up call to do the homework yeah but the point the, qu- yeah. the question is like why can't we do it before you know mm. like why does it take why does it take something so calamitous that you've experienced to mm. to to deal with it you know and i i totally see that in myself you know i'm 44 you know if Mm. i'm being honest i almost have a bit of a a, an underlying sense of foreboding really about what lies ahead. because i'm 44 you know like obviously like things are going to happen you know and i think Mm. you know i mentioned that feast and famine thing earlier Mm. which for me is 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 a real thing you know like i do go through these phases of like right i'm not drinking i'm doing yoga Mm. every day you know living that Version of your best self that everybody recognizes as like being in the head yeah. that you can never live you can never live up to, um, and mm. I kind of begin to think that really that's a manifestation in my case of my unwillingness to confront the reality of 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 what you've experienced, and mm. I that's what I found fascinating about your writing about this, the, the, like the, the exploration of that relationship mm. with mortality.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that was, that's been a, a really um, pivotal kind of turning point in my approach to my diagnosis because there was a point at which I realised, you know, if my only goal here is survival, then I'm constantly on tenterhooks. You know, I'm just I'm agonising over every blood test result and every scan and, you know, whether they be good or, or bad. Um, and a lot of those things are sort of beyond my control, And, um, what I, what I can do is, is make my peace with my mortality because, you know, one thing that's guaranteed is that ultimately I will die as we all will, (laughs) you know, we don't, I don't know when, but if, if the worst thing that can happen is I die and I'm okay with that, then I'm okay. Um, and it's kind of as simple as that really, um, the point at which I kind of get tripped up with that philosophy is just um, in relation to my
0: kids, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, and that's, and that's what thought. I was going to say. You're a father, aren't you? You know, so mm, that's an yeah. that, impossibly difficult thing to reconcile, I imagine.
1: Yeah. And so it, it, it makes me determined to hang around for as long as possible. And it's, it's a great motivator to work really hard at my health. Um, but, yeah, ultimately, um, you know, I won't be here forever. And I've, I've had friends who've gone in the blink of an eye with, without any warning. You know, a great mate who had a heart attack at 45 in front of his two sons. I had another friend who was Christmas shopping, walking down the main street of Burley Heads, and a shop awning fell on him and killed him um so you know um i mean with you know thousands of people meeting untimely ends every day uh so i do i do meditate on death i kind of try and imagine it and sort of drop into it and uh, and when i meditate it just kind of feels like well um if the physical body sort of drops away what's left and there's just a sort of subtle awareness, which is in a meditative state, quite blissful and spending time dwelling with that takes a lot of the fear away, I guess. So, you know, I wouldn't say I'm there yet, but um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm engaged in a process that is um, getting me closer to, being more comfortable with
0: that well i mean it really it really leaps out from your writing and you know it's why i wanted to have this conversation really i think we we're unique this era we're unique in this this part of the world that we live in you know the west first world west whatever we're just unique aren't we and we think we're special in in this regard really you Mm. know i think i think it's probably for most of history it's been much more accepted and much more of a fact of life and and something that people are much more spiritually and mentally prepared for as a result i think really
1: yeah definitely
0: and have you found there's been an ethical dimension to this with you know bringing it back to the the medical conversation because you know as you've discovered and this is not an original observation but you know, a big part of modern Western medical treatment when faced with these situations is just, is almost like to keep people alive at the expense of quality of life, you know, which presumably mm. is presumably is something that you've had to grapple with when yeah. considering yeah, the approach. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, and I definitely come down on the side of quality of life over longevity um, and, and prostate cancer in particular. There, there's a very sort of vigorous sort of debate going on around the advances in medical treatment being really successful in extending life for men with prostate cancer but at the great expense of quality of life and, and they concede that their ability to keep men alive has outstripped their ability to manage the side effects of the treatments which seems like a fairly dubious achievement really to keep <laughs> men alive, alive for longer with the worst quality quality of life and it says a lot about our modern medical model which I think is much better at dealing with sort of big traumas like car accidents or heart attacks than sort of long-term chronic illness and um, I did a I've done a couple of retreats at a place called the Gawler Centre in in Victoria and in southern Australia which was started by a, a sort of noted Cancer survivor named Ian Gawler, who um, who claimed to have healed himself through natural therapies and meditation, and and he he draws a distinction between um, uh, curing and healing. So you know, modern modern medicine seeks to cure with sort of big dramatic interventions that have sort of you know big side effects and um, but achieve you know. Quick results, whereas you know, natural or complementary lifestyle treatments seek to heal over a, over a long period of time and reverse a disease that's probably taken years to develop. And it's a he calls it a you know multifaceted degenerative disease that requires a multifaceted approach. Um, so um, that that made a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why. Again, I want to have this conversation with you, and and why the work you've been doing is so important. Because it shouldn't be a it shouldn't be like a, a you know a zero sum game, should it? It shouldn't mm. be like well, you're either you're either gonna you're either gonna have the treatment in the best tradition of Western medicine, and you're gonna you know, mm. or because you know equally there are ethical arguments on both sides, mm. and yeah, have you found and and well, to, to finish the point, you know you're middle middle ground approach as you described it i think is something that i really understand and empathize with because it seems to reflect the reality of how we how we live and how you will need to approach this you know there's not going to be a magic cure as you say that's going to take it away but equally and equally the skepticism to a degree about the idea that a completely natural Mm. approach can also be effective. Mm. So it's about finding that balance, isn't it?
1: You know, there are, there are charlatans in the world of natural medicines, you know, promoting expensive snake oil that, you know, costs people their lives if they forego conventional therapy. So I'm certainly not one to dismiss, you know, modern medicine. Um, But yeah, exactly. it It is a fairly Buddhist sort of philosophy that the answers in the middle way you know, and I'm, 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 I'm really keen on advocating for a sort of integrative approach. And I get equally frustrated with the worlds of conventional and alternative therapies or medicine. Which, I've and I've written this before. They they spend, seem to spend more time sort of trying to demonize and discredit each other than finding a sensible common ground that would best serve their their patients. Um,
0: yeah, exactly. So that's kind of, there's, there's like you know. There's narratives, aren't there, that seem to be needed to be adhered to, you know. You know, you've used the, the in one of your pieces. You talk about the language of surviving and war, and you know, like mm. cancer porn. Essentially, I think is a, is some a, a phrase that you used as yeah as something that you just personally didn't find very helpful, really, when when dealing with this.
1: No, no no I don't I don't really like the sort of battle language you know everyone every person you read about who's died of cancer has lost a battle with cancer you know and and there's a lot of that sort of sort of yeah sort of battle language in cancer and um I I'm not gonna um wake up every day and go to war with my cancer it's a it's a part of me and a part part of my body it's my they're my cells I'm gonna try and make make my peace with them and call a truce
0: yeah. you know <laughs> yeah with with the conventional approach you know you you mentioned that um you know the the, uh, the diet line is staggering you know diet will make no difference mm. but do you think that's that's a result of this sort, of like polarized approach you know like this this skepticism about this middle or even left-leaning way that's you know a bit a bit waftier and a bit less concrete than like the traditional approach do you think that do you think it is ideological in those terms
1: yeah i think there is a bit of a sort of i call it a bit of a like a cultural group think amongst mainstream medicine and mainstream oncology in particular that that their way is the only way and and certainly i mean there's a level of um proof and evidence required of of modern conventional medicine that is not required of natural therapies you know they have you know huge randomized double blind clinical trials and they have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that something is effective and and document the potential side effects and you know it's an incredibly rigorous process so i understand the skepticism of you know some natural therapies but there isn't really a downside to eating well you know um and no one's no one's doing you know, those sorts of studies cost millions of dollars. So they're kind of they're kind of gaming the system in a sense because the only way you can prove things in their paradigm is to spend millions and millions of dollars running those trials, which then have to be recouped by having a expensive pharmaceutical product at the end of it that you can get a return on your investment for, you know. And so yeah. you know, no one's no one's doing big randomized clinical trials on broccoli or, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, kale. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, but, the, yeah. but there is, as I said, there is. I mean, and they so they tend to be smaller studies, and they're not considered as as sort of co- good quality research, but as i said it's sort of like they're gaming the system because you're just not going to get the resources to do those kind of studies but even so there is really compelling evidence and and growing i think that um you know a plant-based diet for example is um is really effective it might not cure cancer but it's it can be really effective in improving your prognosis and um things like exercise you know my my naturopath um, alerted me to the benefits of high in, high intensity interval training 3 years before any oncologist mentioned it to me and now I've i have participated in in studies at universities using what they call hit you know high high intensity yeah, yeah. interval training as a yeah. as a cancer treatment and there's in the case of prostate cancer it it, um, it increases bone density and improves uh, cardiovascular Health, which the conventional treatments compromise, uh, it improves mood and um, it it can actually kill cancer cells. And you know, I'm not the first person to observe that if there was a a pharmaceutical that did all those things, they would be shouting it from the rooftops. You know, so it yeah. does it does get does get kind of frustrating.
0: Yeah, well, those in the non. In a different context should i say those benefits are just mm. accepted as completely conventional wisdom aren't they you know the mm. fact that the fact that if you do more interval training yeah like something yeah. like there's a home there's a hormone that's released that makes your bones dancer is is just totally yeah. totally accepted isn't it you know yeah. um, and happily well, that- um,
1: happily surfing Surfing fits that model of high intensity interval training quite nicely, you know.
0: Well, that um, brought me very nicely to the uh, to the next question, which was, um, you know, where's where's surfing played a part in this role? Because that was one yeah. of the great part parts about the Surfers Journal story. You know that mm. that that bit about you paddling out when it was a great day and getting a mm. getting a sympathy sympathy wave, but like the you know the effect that that had on you and. I, yeah. I love that so has that been something yeah. that's been i'm imagining given your background and how important yeah. surfing has been to you your whole life that's been critical right
1: oh uh, it's been really key i i actually celebrated my um my five-year cancerversary i called it um recently you know five years to the day since my diagnosis with a surf just down the coast with a couple of mates and a pod of dolphins and you know felt as fit and well as i'd ever felt in my life and you know when you're as any surfer knows when you're flying down the line on a on a um beautiful wave nothing really um gets in the way of that moment you know um and so yeah I've had and I think I those moments are just so much more um precious you know for me now than ever before and 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 surfing with my son And watching him ride a wave and um and just just literally still being able to surf you know like it's not about performance or how many waves i get or even um finding the best quality waves on a given day you know it's just being in the water and you know uh, it's it's all fairly cliche stuff, but, you know, the clouds and the play of light and a, a bird in flight and, you know, the smile on a kid's face when he gets a good wave. Um, yeah, all that stuff. It's just, it's, it's real, it's the good stuff and um, it, it enriches my life immeasurably.
0: Well, again, it's difficult to, or it's easy to forget that when you're caught up in the bullshit of surfing at certain points in your life isn't it you mm. know like and mm. that yeah i mean and, uh, like i say another thing particularly you know the experiences you've had with your son are things you've written really movingly about and which sound like they've really um really helped let's just put it that way you know helps you cope mm. with this and helped you s- try and you know what we're talking about is just acceptance and try to see this for what it is in the in the face of the most difficult challenging circumstances. Which again, you know, bring it back to that, that mm. mortality theme is what is what everybody's going to face. And it just sounds like all of these things have been part of the way you've chosen to try and cope with it, which is really inspiring to be honest. Yeah, it's really it's a really positive yeah. approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think surfing is almost the perfect companion pastime for a cancer diagnosis in a weird kind of way. And I can get fairly cosmic about it at times, you know, like I, and I don't know if the the science really supports this, but sometimes I just sort of just think if the cancer is sort of blocked or stuck energy. And so, you know, when you're riding a wave and you're feeling the energy of the ocean kind of through the surfboard, through your feet, through your body and your body responding you know, and that energy originates in kind of solar flares from the sun warming the surface of the ocean and weather patterns and, you know, you can get as kind of macro about that as you like, that that energy then sort of transfers through your body and dictates the way you ride a wave. Um, I like to think that there's a kind of a therapeutic benefit in that as well, there's just energy energy moving in a, in a really... Um, pleasant and enjoyable way, I think has has to be good for you.
0: Well, humans seek out those elemental experiences, don't they, fundamentally, hmm. and they seek them out. They've, they, they they invent ever more elaborate ways to try and experience them. So, you, you know, I, there's got to be something in it, hasn't there, really? Yeah. You know, when you, yeah. when you think of what we've constructed to try and capture that as a, as a species, it's... <laughs> you know it's Mm. it's no it's no accident is it really
1: yeah yeah and i think um i mean surfing in particular you know we sort of we pile so much up on it you know trying to imbue it with certain qualities or you know grow an industry from it and competition and all these things and but yeah in essence it's just a really beautiful thing to do and and yeah, fortunately for me, it combines all these elements where um, you have the intense physical workout of paddling and duck diving and getting out the back. You have um, that sort of meditative state of just sitting and watching the horizon and the shifting shades of the ocean to detect an incoming swell and then, you, you know, you turn and paddle and have the aerobic workout and sort of physical, you know, balance of... Riding a wave, and it it combines all these things in, with a deep connection to the natural world. You know, it's hard to imagine um, coming up with an activity that would be more therapeutic. I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think I think everybody, again, listening is going to, whatever level as well, just can empathise with that because that's what it gives you, doesn't it? Personally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've obviously been working like a lot through this by the sound by the by the sounds of it and from what i've seen of your output and you said you write a book so is that about the experience
1: yeah. yeah i mean i have i have continued to work i mean i've definitely um sort of downscaled my my sort of work uh level you know i joke about sort of perfecting the sort of two or three hour work day you know um i wrote i wrote a book on the history of rip curl that came out last year which was a really fun project um, and yeah I'm working on a, on a book on my my kind of health journey and I've also um, just been accepted as a as a PhD student to use that book as a basis for a phd so oh, wow. um, I'm pretty excited yeah pretty excited about that um, and I mean I do I've had periods where I've just at different points where I've just kind of stopped work and just focused on my health and, you know, exercise and diet. And it's pretty time consuming trying to do all those things kind of to the letter. Um, But I do find after a few months, I just kind of feel better if I'm, if I'm kind of doing something and, and writing is something that feels pretty elemental to kind of who I am and, um, if I'm not doing it, I feel a bit sort of disoriented with my place in the world, I think. Um, whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not entirely sure. But, um, you know, I think I'm lucky to have, have that, you know, that I, um, I can do work that I find really meaningful and I've been able to continue to, yeah, you know, earn an income. And, and even in these crazy pandemic times, um, my working life has been um, sort of as as good as it's ever been really so i'm feeling quite supported by some kind of benevolent force somewhere
0: you know? <laughs> yeah right yeah. so yeah. What, what so as in because you've been doing it so long it's part of your identity almost mm. or that or the or, or the actual the, the actual act of expression
1: yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I guess it's multi layered. I, I love the process. I love writing. Um, and then, you know, I still get a kick out of having something appear in print, particularly print. I guess I'm a bit old school like that. And so that Surface Journal article in particular, I've had sort of random strangers contact me and reach out, and men who are dealing with a cancer diagnosis themselves or, people expressing that they you know got something out of it um, yeah it's really um, I've really learned to just I I'm really happy to open myself up to whatever goodwill might exist out there for me and you know take that on uh, I'm not yeah it's part of the part of the reason I'm not shy about talking about it um, and and hopefully it helps people you know by writing about it you know hopefully other people you know I know people who who who've live with cancer diagnosis and don't like to talk about it and don't want to be seen as a as a cancer patient that people will look at them differently and, and I understand that and everyone's choice and, and approach to that is completely valid but yeah for me it just works to I guess as a writer you tap into the most profound experiences you have and they don't get much more profound so it just makes sense to write about it
0: you you've always worked in surf writing because you used to edit surf yeah. magazine you over there and you know obviously yeah but you know you've got the got a load of really well-known books that people will know like the mm. rabbit book and you've done one with mick haven't you and um, yeah so is that, is that the background like you you came up through that scene yeah essentially
1: yeah, well, I did, I did this sort of traditional newspaper um, sort of cadetship, it's called, in Australia. I'm not sure. It's probably a similar system in the UK and, and, and a lot of countries. I, I studied journalism at university while working at a newspaper, kind of like an apprenticeship, you know, like doing a trade and doing trade school. So, um, yeah, I have a Bachelor of Arts in journalism and I worked at a, at a metropolitan daily newspaper in Melbourne that, called The Sun which was a a shocking tabloid. And uh, that, no, I is, don't that, think is that Murdoch? Yeah, yeah, it was it was called the Herald and Weekly Times then, but it is yeah, part of the Murdoch stable. Um, and I lasted just a, a quick, couple of years. Just
0: a quick just a quick word on that, there's an amazing documentary about the Murdochs on over on yeah. right now. Is, it, is is it on in the States as well? Um, uh, sorry, I, in Australia even.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard that our national broadcaster, the ABC, has purchased the rights to it, so hopefully we'll be seeing it soon because, um, yeah, I think he's the greatest. Um, well, I don't like to use the word in these terms, but he is a cancer on democracy, yeah. I think.
0: Well, s- um, strong, has, strong words.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he ha- he's done more to corrupt the democratic process in the UK and the US and Australia than any person in history
0: i think and um yeah that that I, documentary certainly makes that case yeah yeah so S- sorry i interrupted you so you were you were working for for that paper in melbourne yeah. And, then... yeah and i
1: was really destined for the for the life of um an australian rules football writer i was working in the sports department i loved my football i played football for many years i had a fairly so sort all of, oh, right you know yeah just at a local level and but loved my footy and and was going to be a a football writer and but I'd always surfed and then um tracks advertised for an assistant editor and I thought gee that sounds like fun and I was (laughs) I'd kind of realized the newspaper world was pretty unhealthy and I didn't want to spend too long in it it was a really great education and I learned a lot and having to think on your feet and file off the top and just that buzz and energy of a daily newspaper was really exciting. And I think it gave me a lot of really good skills and grounding, but I knew I didn't want to stay there too long. And so this, this tracks job came up and I advertised, for, I, I applied for it with zero expectation, you know, as a kid from the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and the guys who worked for tracks in my mind were sort of, surf stars as much as the pro surfers were, you know, I'd grown up reading tracks. When
0: was this? Uh,
1: so I started working at tracks in 1986, uh, at the age of 21. Yeah. Right. So I, um, you know, I'd grown up reading tracks when Phil Jarrett was the editor and then, you know, Nick Carroll was a real literary hero of mine, um, and yeah that's why that's why i
0: asked the question because they're big big Mm. shoes to fill aren't they those those, yeah those fellas you know still legends now aren't they you know so
1: yeah and and to be honest i think i i I suffered a lot of sort of imposter syndrome initially you know like i said i was this kid from the eastern suburbs of melbourne who who hadn't even lived near the beach you always had to travel to surf you know and um you know, fortunately for me, they had a, a sort of mainstream publisher who would bought the magazine, and um, he had a fairly disdainful view of surfers, and and he had decreed that they <laughs> that they had they had to hire a proper journalist who surfed a bit rather than a proper surfer who wrote a bit. And um, That's I classic. guess, I, yeah. <laughs> so I guess I kind of I was I was the beneficiary of that fairly kind of um, what's the word you yeah, know, sort of bigoted view of surfing. Um, yeah, that's
0: funny.
1: Yeah, and in landing the job, I mean, there's a lot of funny stories about that that guy and that era of tracks because, you know, I had visions of, you know, tracks in a little timber beach house at Whale Beach with, you know, <laughs> a, bon- a bong in the corner and, you
0: know,
1: <laughs> uh, you know lunchtime surfs and um, they were in an inner city mainstream publishing house with this yeah, fairly um, sort of urbane Englishman as a, as a publisher who, who also published, amongst other magazines, published Australian Playboy and a cricket magazine. And, and the, my favourite story about him is that when the, the head honchos from Playboy International came to the office to sort of do a tour of the building to see how their Australian licensee was going, he got to the tracks office and told them it was a broom cupboard, and didn't didn't take them in there.
0: <laughs> I think I went there. Like my a good mate of mine, a guy called Ben Mundy. I don't know if you know Ben. He used yeah, to, yeah. He he used to um he was the thing he was like a city. Well, he probably did everything at tracks when he was there. Yeah. yeah, I went to. I was in Australia two thousand and three when he was at tracks. I used to, I was running a snowboard mic over here at the time, so I went. I went. To, I'm yeah. pretty sure it's the same place. And I remember being pretty. Yeah. like, All right, this is it. Okay, you know. But the well, heritage yeah. is amazing. You know, I you look through the. I went and look at all the archives, and yeah, it was, it was yeah. The proper proper history of Australian surfing right there, isn't it? You know.
1: Yeah, but yeah, it it might have moved a couple of times since. Like I was in, uh, we were in Darlinghurst, Crown Street, Darlinghurst, and then I think we moved to Rushcutters Bay, and then I think they moved somewhere sort of more even more inner city sort of in the chinatown area of sydney that's
0: where i went um that's where yeah, i went yeah yeah
1: so that that was a bit after my time but there there was still yeah there was still definitely a sort of a a, a vibe and a and a legacy it just it wasn't that kind of whale beach beach house which yeah, i've right. been kind of picturing you know been, there would be there well, were junkies so in the laneway at the back and yeah
0: yeah well when we ran that snowboard mag it was based in near oxford and um yeah and we were like come on we can't we can't we're gonna to move to the alps you know and our, yeah, our yeah. publisher our publisher was not that impressed although he did let us do it to be fair to him yeah well, he was a bit like yeah. what you can't you know should be in oxford we're like can't run a snowboarding magazine from oxford it's not how it works no uh, yeah, yeah so and then and then you got into um you know you've like i said you've written a lot of books. And the, you've written one yeah. about like, the, his, the the history of Australian surfing, right, as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just to quickly sort of fill in some gaps, I, I, I moved to the Gold Coast and edited Surfing Life magazine for about five years. And then I left Surfing double, Life. Did
0: the double whammy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I left Surfing Life ostensibly to write Rabbit Bartholomew's biography, Busted Down the Door and um and then just sort of yeah kind of managed manage to sort of um create a sort of fairly tenuous freelance existence <laughs> after that and yeah i've written a bunch of books uh australia's century of surf is a yeah history of australian surfing that it marked the centenary of the duke kahana moku coming to australia um yeah did a book with mick fanning called surf your life uh wrote oki's biography oki uh and I wrote a book called Safari, which is about our family's sort of round Australia road trip in 2011, which was the best thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, spent Pulled the kids out of school and spent eight months driving around the country, um, surfing, wow. which was incredible. So Wow, that um, sounds
0: brilliant. Well, you did the whole coast. You went around the whole...
1: Yeah, yeah 27,000 kilometers over about eight months, towing a caravan wow. and half a dozen surfboards on the roof and yeah it was awesome amazing best thing best thing ever
0: yeah nice so, so it, when, yeah it's been good to me yeah so and and have you got a the book that you're working on now is that is that going to be published have you got published yeah that and is that gonna
1: yeah yeah i've signed a, a publishing deal with my um uh i mean my publisher is penguin random house they've i've been dealing with the same woman my my publisher has been the same for all my books, although she's moved publishers. So the first, my first couple of books were with HarperCollins, and then she moved to Random House, and then they they merged with Penguin. So they're now Penguin Random House. But um, yeah. so I've got a great great relationship with her, a woman named Alison Urquhart, and so I've yeah I've literally done all my books with the with the same person as a publisher but just a couple of different publishing companies um and i wrote a book called high surf which is probably just about my favorite of my own books really which is just um i guess a tries to i guess um articulate a kind of philosophy of surfing really which sounds a bit kind of highfalutin but it was really just sort of telling the human stories of some of the greatest characters I'd met through my surfing and writing life and, and the lessons they'd learned from surfing in the ocean um, and a few of my own anecdotes and observations kind of thrown in. Um, so, yeah, I feel really blessed. I've had an amazing working life. It's been incredible. When I think of the, the kid in landlocked suburban Melbourne who just wanted to try and get to the beach However, he could, by whatever desperate means he could, if you told him that he would one day make a living writing about surfing and write books about people like Rabbit and Oki and Mickey would have been <sighs> completely gobsmacked, you know.
0: So yeah it's well, you pretty, can't, it's, can't cast more than that, can you? You know, I mean, that's, no. that's amazing. Um, yeah, and have yeah. you got have you got a date for the new one? Got a publication date, or is it still in uh, days?
1: Well, yeah, no, it's it's yeah, it's a fair way off. I want to give myself plenty of time. And, um, uh, it's uh, it's slated for twenty twenty two. So yeah, I'll be working on it on this over the next sort of eighteen months, and submitting a manuscript in early twenty twenty two, and then you know the publishing industry have certain release dates they sort of peg for certain books and say this is this is pegged as a bit of a father's day release which is sort of september in australia 2022 it sounds a long way off you know who knows who knows what well, state you know, the world
0: Yeah. still sounds like the future doesn't it 2022 it's like yeah you know, it's like can't be can't be two can't be two years away it's too, you know, no. it's too futuristic. Yeah, it
1: gives me the opportunity to really spend a lot of time on it and, and and doing the PhD will allow me to, I guess, take a more sort of scholarly, academic approach to it and make it more than sort of personal well, that's, memoir.
0: That's what I was going to say. It sounds like you're going to be pretty busy. <laughs> it's quite yeah. a couple of like mammoth projects you've got on the go.
1: Yeah, uh, and I just, I just, I guess I want to um, make something good come out of this, situation and and I'm really passionate about advocating for that sort of integrative approach to cancer care generally so I guess I want to produce something that can't easily have holes picked in it you know that I can write personally from my own experiences but then I definitely want to take a very I guess academic approach to tapping into the best available research so that it can't be easily dismissed and that yeah, things like meditation and diet and exercise, um, and um, I guess even some of the more esoteric things, you know, around just your mental attitude, um, can be fully recognised and and integrated with conventional therapies. And I think that's when we'll see some real breakthroughs in, in, um, you know, the what the survival rates and and the quality of life for people living with cancer
0: well that's one of the questions i was going to ask you when you were going through this exploration yourself was was there anything that covered this ground or did you tend to find it yeah. as the, the, the 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 sort of polarized views that took precedence
1: uh I've, i found a few really good books actually um one of the first people who was a great help to me was morris cole the surfboard shaper who um, had been dealing with a, a slightly different but similar um, diagnosis, and he he tipped me into a book called Anti Cancer, um, but written by a doctor who had diagnosed his own brain tumor. Um, it's kind of a long story, but um, and his his name always escapes me. It's a really unusual hyphenated name, but that was the best sort of middle path I'd seen, sort of articulated by someone who was really well qualified and you know it was the first time I didn't feel annoyed that someone was just sort of on one or other side of that kind of cultural divide he was you know giving equal weight to conventional and complementary therapies and that you know basically making the case that you'd be foolish not to be availing yourself of the best of both worlds Um, so that was probably the most influential book I read Um, And then this guy Ian Gawler who opened this cancer centre in Melbourne uh, 35 years ago and started the first sort of cancer support group in Australia before that has a book called You Can Conquer Cancer, which was also pretty influential to my thinking. Um, And then there's a fantastic book called Radical Remissions Uh, A woman named Kelly Turner, as a as a PhD project, studied all these cases where people had achieved radical remissions that modern medicine couldn't explain, and identified the the ten most common traits of these cases. Because incredibly, yeah, um, and because incredibly modern oncology don't study those cases; they just dismiss them as statistical anomalies because they can't explain them. And and interestingly, you know, she went into it expecting to identify, you know, particular diet or herbs or supplements that were effective. And she ended up concluding that a lot of the factors were kind of spiritual, emotional factors that, you know, was people who had a strong will to live, people who had found a spiritual dimension to their diagnosis, you know, who took a sort of a fairly sort of metaphysical or sort of esoteric view of perhaps why the cancer had come and had made some sort of progress in sort of making their peace with it, um, were the ones who seemed to fare best. And that, that was also really influential in my thinking.
0: So when you said you want to make it robust and attack proof Mm. almost, you you know, obviously that begs the question, you expect, Presumably, there's people that disagree with with the approach that you might outline, or are you? Ex- it's almost like you try to preempt that with the approach. Is that is that right? Is that something you're concerned yeah,
1: about? Yeah, uh, uh, it's just it's just a very live debate. I think in all around the world. I mean, we had a very famous case in Australia. There was a woman named Bell Gibson, who um, who was as it turned out was a complete phony, and she had falsely claimed she had cancer, and then had pretended to cure herself of a cancer she never had. And without any sort of, without any double checking, she got a, a, she became a huge sort of Instagram influencer and she got a publishing deal and she wrote a cookbook on how to heal yourself from cancer. And then it all sort of came to light that it was a complete, a complete hoax, um, which made, I guess, that sort of market for you know, cancer self-care books a little bit sort of troubled and made publishers really wary. Um, and so I'm just, yeah, really determined to kind of distance myself from that kind of thing and um, certainly not someone who's trying to convince anyone not not to um, follow their oncologist's instructions, you know, but... I, I like the idea that Ian Gawler promotes that you know you treat your you treat your medical specialists as consultants and you you question them and you push back and you don't just blindly follow everything they say and you do some of your own research and you sort of come to them with lots of questions and you make a bit of a, a nuisance of yourself you know yeah um, at the same time I've I've spoken to integrative oncologists who embrace that that sort of middle path who say you know that, the typical oncologist regards their patients as a um, what did he call it, like a a delivery system to transport their tumours to them. So they just they treat their tumours wow. and, and not and not the person, you know. Which I thought well, was, that, that's um, what
0: I was going to say. Like the broad church approach, the broad church statistical approach, you know, even like when you outline that radical remissions book, and you said, well, they don't really count them because they're such statistical outliers. That's the, that's that's mm. the kind of result, isn't it? You know, like it, this, that, it doesn't leave a lot of room for nuance, I guess. Which, no. which, which is something that you've obviously been searching for to help you understand it.
1: Yeah, and I'm not. Look, I'm not a. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think. Um, the whole medical profession are engaged in a in a conspiracy to suppress effective cancer treatments at the behest of Big Pharma. But um, <laughs> I do think I do think modern medicine is is too influenced by pharmaceutical companies, and I do think there's a cultural group, think, that is sort of too dismissive of you know natural or complementary therapies and and their their useful role in supporting conventional therapies and mitigating side effects and improving prognosis, and I don't think there are any silver bullets in those natural therapies. You know, anything anything that claims to be ten thousand times more effective than chemotherapy, I think is a is probably bullshit. You know, <laughs> um, and you know a lot a lot of the alternative treatments with high price tags immediately yeah set off my kind of bullshit alarm so um yeah i try and keep things pretty simple and 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 evidence-based and just kind of common sense too i guess
0: yeah well as you say there's so many examples these days aren't there of just waywardness and like people are able to promote fairly dubious things quite readily so yeah it's, it's yeah it sounds like a common you know a great combination of the robustness of of where you come from as a writer and a journalist and also the experience that you've had you know so yeah like really really well placed to kind of explore this because you know it, it's obviously your story but there's an as we've been saying all along there's an ethical dimension to this isn't there as well that, that yeah is very relevant right now
1: yeah and we've spent you know as a society we've spent trillions of dollars on in the sort of the war on cancer and it's, it, you know, it's kind of gone as well as the war on drugs or the war on terrorism, <laughs> you know, and um, yeah, I think it's time to take a broader view and um, yeah, I've reached out to some sort of academics in the field who are really um, keen to collaborate and can see the value in having, you know, someone with, actually having you know the lived experience who's also a, a journalist and a writer who can you know give that sort of first hand account of how it is from the inside and and what's helped and what's been useful and i'm i'm not in i'm not trying to give unqualified medical advice i'm I've, i'm wanting to speak mainly to sort of quality of life issues which i yeah. think i can i can write about with authority you know because i'm living it
0: yeah yeah, well, yeah. that's the, the your story is 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 the proof, isn't it? Basically, <laughs> yeah. you know, it 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 has it has completely enabled you to get through this this approach, which is yeah, you know, remar- remarkable, really.
1: Yeah, and I want to kind of kind of use myself as my own guinea pig. Like I was just driving along today, listening to a a radio program about art therapy and how there's a a, a program called. Uh, it was something like uh, art on prescription and so you know um, therapists you know prescribing art, art classes for people with chronic illness or depression or anxiety as a, as a form of therapy and I thought oh maybe I'll do some art classes and you know see how that feels um, <laughs> so yeah yeah it's a it's a really it's a it's a great project to have um, in in yeah in a way that I guess can can benefit me in really tangible ways as well and hopefully help other people so yeah pretty stoked
0: yeah yeah well Tim thanks so much for your time today that was, that was really great conversation I really enjoyed that thank you
1: yeah yeah no me too Matt and Theo thanks for your, your questions and yeah really really happy to have the chat
0: so there you go that was me and Tim Baker and I hope you enjoyed it I mean that's one of those episodes where I'd I am lucky to be able to do what I do, you know. I don't know Tim. We never met. He just completely trusted me with that. That was a very special conversation and I'm very, very grateful. I'm going to use the phrase again for his generosity of spirit and for being so patient with some of my questions because, you know, I did ask a few dumb ones. I I realized the meditation question was straying into the territory of idiocy. Please explain meditation. But, you know, I had a hunch... Tim would relate it to his own treatment and it would be insightful, which I felt it was. I also left my tactful, tactless even, in there um, at the beginning where I described his uh, diagnosis as terminal. Because I just think it's okay to make mistakes and learn things on the fly, which is what was going on there. And yeah, I want to acknowledge that I did interrupt him a few times. We did that one over Skype and basically it was a completely shocking line with a bad delay. I just had to do it to keep the conversation moving at times. Sorry, everyone. And, you know, if you've had one of those slightly delayed conversations, I think you'll know what what I'm getting at there. Anyway, if you want to find out more about Tim and his work, please check out his website, bytimbaker.com, and also consider signing up to his Patreon page, where you'll find his new and old surf writing, and also a lot of stuff that might be helpful to anyone living with cancer or other chronic illness, and also for their loved ones as well, because Tim has written extensively and very uh, subtly on this subject. If you're interested in any of the other issues we spoke about, such as the ethics of palliative care or our own shifting relationship with mortality, I highly recommend the book Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, which I do think I've mentioned on the podcast before, which certainly helped me reach a new understanding and a new way of thinking about life and death. Um, As I explained to Tim doesn't mean I've got anywhere near cracking it but um, it certainly put things into a new perspective which I thought was really welcome and that is a nice segue to bring me to this week's housekeeping corner yep those other lightweights have fucked off so it's just us the diehards left so what's the segue well just to say that that book recommendation is the type of thing I share in the blogs I publish over at my website and also through my fortnightly newsletter where I share the 10 things I think are worth sharing every time no spam just thought provoking and hopefully intriguing links that speak to our modern culture of action sports and the wider world. The blog has contributions from recent guests. There's a lot of stuff to get stuck into from Matt Warshaw's Five Surfers Worth re- Reevaluating to East Key Britain's Five Ways to Protect the Ocean. You can find all this, sign up for the newsletter, the archive and the show notes over at www.wearelookingsideways.com. So what else is going on? Well I've been asked to go on a fair few podcasts myself recently which has been an interesting experience after my appearance on the Active Minds and Stokely podcast. I was just a guest on the 1% for the Planet podcast with James Joyner which is a really fun chat. Should be out next week. Thank you for getting me on the show James. Still getting used to being on the other side of the mic to be honest. But it's a good insight into how it feels when I'm uh, firing dumb questions at people. I've also been chatting to a friend of mine about another idea, actually, over the months. A looking sideways meetup, gathering or event. Hold on. I mean, it's something we've been discussing for a while, me and this friend of mine. I guess the idea we've currently got is some kind of cross between the Do Lectures and the Meltdown Festival. Yeah, blimey. I mean, I really like the idea of getting guest curators to come in and help me put a program together. Talks, art shows, exhibitions, live interviews, live podcasts, live music, nice food, surfing, snowboarding, skateboarding, you know, find a nice location, choose a curator, work to put together a program of events. People can come and stay and take part. We might even stream the whole thing online. Pretty amazing idea, right? Obviously, couldn't have picked a worse time in human history to think about launching an event. This will be a 2021 or 2022 thing. Global pandemic notwithstanding. But yeah, it'd be awesome to hear any feedback on this one. And if you're thinking festival, come on, mate, you've not even managed to sort your book out yet. You've been chatting about that for months. What can I say? Softly, softly, kill the monkey, as my wife likes to say. On which malapropistic bombshell, that was for you, Ben and Paul, I'm off for this week. Hit me up with any feedback to podcast at weallookinsideways.com or over at Instagram at we look Sideways. Nice one.